You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, where we've been studying intermittently, morning and evening, it seems, it's staggering through the first chapter, and you'll find it if you're using the church Bible on page 1178, 1178 of the church Bible. And tonight we're reading uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. Uh, the story so far, as uh, my mother's people's friend used to say uh, at the top, uh, I'm not embarrassed to admit that since there was very little to read in our family, I used to read the people's friend when I was about eight or nine, uh, probably aspiring to be one of those young ministers who appeared can you believe it in, in those days? And the, the choir filled up with the daughters of the hopeful mothers of this handsome bachelor, but I never got that far. So the story so far is Paul is in prison, uh, probably, although not certainly, in Rome. He does refer in chapter 1 to the Praetorian Guard uh, who were... Uh, like the Navy SEALs of the United States of America, they were uh, top uh, military individuals. And he's writing to the Philippians for a number of reasons. One is they've sent him a gift, and he wants to thank them for it, although interestingly, he leaves that to the end. Uh, he wants to explain why he's sending Epaphras uh, back to them. Uh, you'll notice that uh, he is mentioned uh, later on in chapter 2, Epaphroditus, who had brought the gift, had almost died in the process of caring for Paul, and Paul's sending him back. It looks to me as though they really wanted Paul to send Timothy back, and, and you know what that's like. You know, you're really looking forward to Timothy coming, and it's the fellow you, you know, you see him every day of the week, and, and he turns up. And so he's, he's explaining to them why it is that Timothy's not coming to them uh, just now. And clearly, Epaphroditus had brought some information about what was going on in the church. And so even before he really gets around to thanking them, uh, he wants to give them pastoral instruction. And there's another reason he's writing. They know he's in prison, and he knows that that has been a discouragement to them. And he wants them to understand that rather than be a discouragement, this has been an instrument in the hands of God to bring the gospel to people who would not have come to hear Christians preach the gospel. And so he describes this very unusual situation where uh, there were top uh, Roman military uh, collecting their stipend in order to stand beside Paul and listen to him. They had no choice in the matter, speak to them about Christ, so that it spread throughout this whole group of people, uh, 
that he was a prisoner for Jesus Christ. And so, in this marvelous way, he says, rather than be a hindrance to the advance of the gospel, it's actually been the means of advancing the gospel. And my fellow believers here, perhaps in Rome, have been encouraged by this to preach the gospel. And then where we left off last time, he says this very sad and unusual thing. He said, there are some people who are doing this in order to get their stick into me, um, probably because they once had positions of leadership, but they no longer had it, and they saw Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity for them to seize positions of influence. And he says this amazing thing uh, at the end of the passage we looked at weeks and weeks ago. He says, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, he goes on, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith. So, that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. I was very struck this morning during David's sermon at the morning service about his comments on joy, about the fact that so many of us as Christians, and he included himself, in fact, if I remember rightly, he was talking exclusively about himself, uh, how joy is a note that isn't always sounded in our Christian lives. And that's actually quite significant because joy is a big deal in the Bible. There are approximately 600 references to joy in the Bible. And what is very interesting about Paul's little letter to the Philippians is that there are 14 or 15 references to joy in these four chapters, a disproportionate amount of reference to joy for a letter written by a man who is in prison. And that's so much the case that certainly in the past, Bible readers and commentators often used to say that the chief theme of Philippians is joy. One of the great old commentators uh, who uh, commented on this said that the theme of 
Uh, Philippians is, he put it in Latin, gaudio gaudete, which as you all know means I rejoice, so you rejoice. And that certainly is the theme of this passage. It's the bookends of this passage. I'm rejoicing, and you notice that by the end he has moved through a number of stages like those little puzzles change this word into this word. He's moved through a number of stages from I am rejoicing to you are rejoicing. It's not true, of course, that joy is the real theme of Philippians for the simple reason that joy is always, always, no exceptions, dogmatic statement. There are no exceptions whatsoever to this. Joy is always a byproduct of something else. And it's interesting in this context, we were actually singing it, uh, Charles Wesley's Methodist hymn that we were singing in St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, and you were here. Rejoice, again I say, rejoice is straight out of Philippians chapter 4. And that's the second time Paul commands the Philippians to rejoice. He does it at the beginning of chapter 3, doesn't he? Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, where's the problem? The problem is this, that most of us think of rejoicing joy as a a kind of bubbling up emotion in our lives. No problem there. So, where's the problem? The problem is this. It makes no sense whatsoever to command somebody to have an emotion. Of course, we do it all the time, don't we? Be happy. You know, you say to your children, what's that sulk? Be happy. And what do you get? You get a sulk. And in some ways, quite rightly so. You can't just be happy. You can't, there's no verb, reflexive verb, to happify yourself. We can't just generate emotions by people telling us that we should have them those of you who love C.S. Lewis and have read his entire corpus, remember how marvelous he makes this point about authors. He says, the one thing you should never do, and this actually applies to preachers as well, you should never tell people they ought to have this emotion. That will never evoke that emotion. No, says Lewis, what you have got to do is to describe reality in such a way that that will evoke the emotion. That will evoke the response. It's like telling people to believe in Christ. You've got to believe in Christ without telling them anything about Christ. And so one of the marvelous little things about this passage in which he begins by speaking about his own rejoicing and ends by speaking about their rejoicing is that he's, he's actually answering our question before we ask it of him in chapters 3 and 4. All very well for you to tell me to rejoice. 
My problem with you, Paul, you never seem to tell me how to do the things you tell me to do. And so, of course, it's at that point that we need to go down to the Christian bookstore or we need to go to a special seminar to find out how we're supposed to do the things the Bible tells us to do. Well, that can't be right, can it? No, and this is a great lesson for us in our Bible study, isn't it? Instead of listening to these exhortations and saying, well, you're not telling me how to do it, and then scurrying off to a website or doing a Google search or going to a conference or somewhere, all very good in their places, is to keep your nose down in the Scriptures. And it is so often true, wonderfully true, that if we keep our noses down long enough in the Scriptures, if we breathe in the Scriptures long enough, patiently enough, so often we discover that the Scriptures themselves have given us instruction about how this happens in our lives. So that if we said to Paul, we started complaining to Paul in chapter 4, look, you're telling me twice to rejoice, you're not telling me how to rejoice. I think he would say with his quizzical little smile, if he had a quizzical little smile, did you start reading my letter from the end backwards? I've already told you how joy comes in the life of the Christian believer, how I rejoiced and, and how through my ministry you began to rejoice, and how I did that in a situation that apparently wouldn't produce joy. And you'll notice how he emphasizes this. He says at the, in the middle of verse 18, I'm rejoicing because Christ is preached and, and then he says, yes. Uh, and and that, that yes is, a, is a, a kind of, yes, I know that there don't seem to be too many reasons to rejoice. But despite that, he says, I will continue to rejoice. This is, this is something to which I'm committed. I'm going to be a rejoicing believer. And so, it's at this point, not at chapter 4 or chapter 3, but at this point we should be saying, hold on a minute, Paul. How can, you, how can you commit yourself to being this joyful Christian? Now, there's a tremendous amount in this passage. Of course, there's a tremendous amount in this passage, but I want to, I want to try and, and focus down on three particular principles that we find here that in many ways lie at the heart of this joy that the Apostle Paul himself experiences. And the first principle is this. It is that his joy flows from a very deep conviction that his sufferings or his afflictions are actually working for his salvation. His afflictions, not usually causes of joy, his afflictions are working for his salvation, and that is a cause for rejoicing. And notice how he puts it, I will continue to rejoice for, you see, that little word for, 
So there's a reason I will continue to rejoice. And here's the reason. I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, that's the New International Version. I think it's the same in the English Standard Version. Those of you who are looking at your Greek New Testament, and the, I know who you are, I know your name, and I know your number in this congregation, you will realize that the word that's used here and actually translated this way in the authorized version is the word salvation. It's the normal word for salvation. And it's translated here deliverance because many scholars assume that Paul is speaking here about his deliverance from prison. Through your prayers and the work of the Spirit of God, this is going to work out for my deliverance from prison. And there are, I think, certain problems with that translation if we take it as deliverance from prison. And the first is it's very difficult to see how what Paul has been speaking about here is going to have that effect. He says, this is going to work out for my deliverance. Uh, uh, What has happened to me is a paraphrase of that. It's going to work out for my deliverance. Well, how can being in prison work out for your deliverance from prison? How can the fact that people have got a needle into you work out for your deliverance? He's surely speaking about something different, something grander. These difficulties that I've encountered, God is going to work through them. Yes, probably for my deliverance from prison, I will be delivered. But He has got a grander program in mind through all these difficulties, these afflictions I've experienced. And this is why He uses language that isn't really appropriate to getting out of prison. He uses language to describe this that he characteristically uses in connection with looking forwards to his final salvation. And you'll notice how he uses that language in verse 20. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. And these three expressions he uses, eagerly expect this glorious anticipation, hope, this marvelous assurance of what has not yet been experienced, this marvelous sense of looking forward eagerly, hoping a deep assurance of what he hasn't yet experienced, and not being ashamed. It's very interesting in the New Testament, and especially in Paul, this is all language that's used about what lies finally in the future, about the salvation that will be finally ours in Jesus Christ. He uses this language in Romans chapter 8, how he's the, the, the eagerness looking forward to the day when the whole creation that's been standing and tiptoe looking forward to the sons of God coming into their own, when that day comes, and salvation is finalized. This is the Christian hope. Paul's hope was never just that in a few days' time he would be released from prison. 
but rather he's thinking about all, all of these things he's experienced. This is, this is the reason he could rejoice. Of course he would rejoice if he was released from prison, except he's a little qualification on that because he thinks there's something better. And so he understands that all of these afflictions he's going through, and this is probably the reason he quotes in these verses from the 13th chapter of the book of Job. In the Greek translation that uh, Paul characteristically used when he's speaking about things working for his salvation, it's a it's like a little quotation. Those of you who, who love classical music, you know how classical musicians love to do this. Poets, at least great poets, love to do this. Just to throw in a little quotation from somebody, and he throws in a little quotation from Job, going through all his sufferings, and yet looking forward to the great deliverance, the salvation that God is going to bring. Um, I should have looked this up, but I think it may be from this very statement that the Heidelberg Catechism, in its first question and answer, our only hope in life and death, concludes the answer by saying that everything is going to work for our salvation. I see that's what brings joy to Christians who have been in miserable situations. That's what so perplexes non-Christians about Christians who have grasped this, who share this deep conviction. So, you see, Paul's joy is, is, not, is not the result of heightened emotion. No, it's not because he fits into some kind of psychological category of the joyful. There's something completely countercultural about this joy because it doesn't arise from the culture. It arises from his sense that God is working in all things and employing all things in order to fulfill his purposes in our lives, to bring us finally to salvation, so that not a hair can fall from our heads, nor can anything untoward take place in our lives that in the in the, in the wonder of his loving hands, he, he does not graciously employ and weave and mold and shape and tailor and write into our lives with a view to our final salvation. God is a weaver, isn't he? He's constantly weaving patterns of his grace into our lives, and one day they will be most marvelously on display. And so, because his horizon is fixed on God's horizon, because he shares God's horizon for his life, that transforms the way in which he, he looks at everything. So, the first thing is that he has a deep conviction that afflictions work for his salvation. The second principle that he speaks about here, I think we can put this way, he has a confident expectation that Christ will be honored in him either in life or in death. 
or indeed we might say, both in life and in death. Look at what he says now in verse 20. He says, I eagerly expect and hope I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. I think I'm right in saying that's a unique expression in Paul and a unique expression in the New Testament and a unique expression in the Bible. And when you find things said several times in the Bible, you know you should pay attention. When you find something said only once in the Bible, you should make them, where did that come from? It's a fascinating statement, isn't it? He has this expectation that Jesus Christ is going to be exalted, glorified in his body. I mean, that's a wow, isn't it? I mean, especially when you think about his body. I've sometimes imagined uh, when I was in the United States, half my life, you know, Paul turning up at the church picnic at the lake and taking off his cloak and the, the mums and dads shielding the eyes of the little ones from, from those, those ghastly furrows on his back where he'd received the 39 lashes five times, the, the bruises from the shipwreck, um, that, that surely stole the marks of having been stoned. And you, you see this is all simply an expression of it. You know, mummy, what, what on earth? Why, why, why would this man still be wanting to come to a church picnic if that's how he's been treated for being a Christian? Answer. Because he wanted Jesus Christ to be exalted in his body. Now, what's so fascinating about that is we have a tendency to want Jesus Christ to be exalted in our hearts, don't we? Um, but this would be something, wouldn't it, to wake up in the morning and say, Lord, exalt Jesus in my body, with my eyes, with my ears, my mouth, hands, feet, everything I am. That would... That really, for some of us who may not do that, you know, sustain that through the day, and it would transform life. In some ways, it would make it would make it would make it would it make it easier to deal with temptation, temptation of the eyes and the ears and the hands and the feet, simply to have this principle. He's going to be exalted in this body, whether in life or in death. He will, of course, ultimately be exalted in this body, in the resurrection, transformation. Do you remember how he writes to the Corinthians about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? And uh, it's, in a, it's in a very unsavory context, and so I, 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 don't, I don't want to read the context. It, the, the context is really horrific. But in the context, he says a number of really striking things about the Christian's attitude to his or her body. He says the body is the Lord's. 
The body is the Lord's. You know, I think of one of the mantras of the age that has driven both the politics and the legislation of our time, a woman's body is her own. No right-thinking Christian woman would ever dream of saying that, nor man. Your body, says the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, is the Lord's. Your body will be raised up. And if your body is going to be raised up, what does that mean? It means God counts our bodily existence as important. He goes on to say, look, your body is a member of Christ. He's actually talking about illicit sexual relationships. And he's saying, would you make a member of Christ your body? Would you, would you give that over to an illicit relationship? And you see what his emphasis is. It's that we are Christ's. And we're not just Christ's somewhere down deep inside. We are Christ's. Our body's Christ's. Indeed, he says, don't you understand? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, it's been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, he concludes, glorify him in your body. And that's what he's echoing here. He is saying in verse 20, now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Whether I'm set free and I'm able to, to continue preaching the gospel or whether I die, Jesus Christ is going to be exalted. Jesus Christ is going to be exalted. And, and you see what happens to him. And this is, I think this is immensely challenging to just our general perception of being a Christian. As soon as he says, uh, even, if, even if I'm taken out to die, Jesus Christ is going to be exalted in my body. And then he says, you know, That creates a kind of tension in me. Not because I want to escape the suffering, although that would be nice, but because it would mean if I died, I would be with Christ. And he says this. This is, um, this is like a little litmus test of, of whether I think Christianly or not. That would be far better. You know, you have a near-death experience, you know, a bus almost runs you down, or you may have been very ill, and, you know, you, you, uh, you know you, <laughs> you're still here, and you're so grateful to the Lord that you're still here, and it has been good of Him to keep you here. But you know, there's another side to that, isn't there? I'm really glad I'm still here because I really prefer being here. Well, Paul realizes he's supposed to be here, but not for that reason. And so he makes this, this amazing statement about how this kind of 
creates a tension in him because he says to be with Christ would be better by far. I mean, not just better, but actually better by far. Now, you're not speaking about this, but it's, quite, it's absolutely crystal clear to me that if Paul believed in what's sometimes called soul sleep, that you just go to sleep when you die, and then the next thing is the resurrection, he wouldn't speak like this. No, he's saying the, 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 the moment of my death is the moment of my life. The moment of the end of this life is the entryway into eternal life. And the great thing is, you notice how he speaks about it. It means being with Christ. Old Scottish theologian of the early 20th century, P.T. Forsyth, used to put it this way. He would say, that uh, if to live is Christ, to die is gain, because it's more Christ, just more and more and more and more Christ. Now, that puts a radically different perspective on the way we live, doesn't it? Even if it creates this kind of struggle in him. You know, I've been haunted That's too strong a word. I've been followed, pursued almost all of my Christian life by a dream I had when I was a young teenager. I dreamt I had died and gone to heaven. (laughs) Dreamt I died and gone to heaven. And for some strange reason, some of my young Christian friends had got there first. They said, oh, crowding around. It's great here, you know, terrific and all the rest of it. And I remember in this dream, and it's it's haunted me for a reason I'll tell you in a minute. I, I pushed them aside in the dream. I saw myself pushing them aside and saying to them rather unkindly, if you're allowed to do that in your first minute in heaven, let me see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. So I was still a child, wasn't I? You know, people crowd around the wee one who's hurt and, and uh, pu- wee one pushes them. One mummy, one mummy. In a way, it was very, it was very infant age Christianity. It's often come back to me as though there were a there were a little caption underneath saying, "Is it still true? Is it still true? You want to see Jesus?" And you see, this is what this lies behind. When, when that's true, it casts an amazingly different light on whether we live or whether we die. Because when, when our hearts are so centered on Jesus Christ, when he, is the, when he is the center and other things go to the circumference, then we see the whole circle of life differently. And so, in this marvelous way, he not only has this deep conviction, he has, in the second place, a confident expectation that in him, because he loves Christ, Christ is going to be honored. And it's out of that love for the Lord Jesus that joy is born. And then the final thing, 
He has a confident expectation that's based on a strong conviction and leads to a profound sense of vocation, a profound sense of vocation. And he goes on to speak about this, verses 24 through 26. He says, it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So, here's, here's his conundrum. I'd love to be with Christ, but it looks as though he's keeping me here. Why is he keeping me here? Well, here's the explanation. He says, it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. And you'll notice that he had hinted it earlier on, verse 22, which is a real motto text for life. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. You see, he, he has a sense of vocation. If I'm still here, there can be only one explanation. The Lord means me to have fruitful labor. Now, you notice how he goes on to explain this. He says, I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. What is his vocation? His vocation is so to serve the Lord Jesus Christ that the joy of others will increase and true joy will be born for the first time in the hearts of those Christ calls to himself. You know, when you meet somebody, I think it's probably still true today, people don't ask me this any longer because I look retired, and retired isn't something that you do, but you know, when we get to know people, that is the question that we ask, isn't it? What do you do? Now, for the Christian, that's far down the totem pole of how we think about ourselves. Vocation. Our calling as Christians, vocation for the Christian, is not so much about answering the question, what do you do, but answering the question, what are you for? And especially if you're younger and you're in the process of wondering what you're going to do, if you settle that other question, those questions about what you do will fit into God's economy in your life very naturally. Because the really important thing about you as a Christian is not what you do. That's how humans measure things, isn't it? Well, that's what you do. You know, you know men's wallets bulge with these cards, shop cards, credit cards. The, the kind of dark side of me at one time. I had a whole series of these cards, and they all had different titles. One of them just had my name. The next one had Mr. on it. The next one had Reverend on it. The next one had Doctor on it. And the next one had Professor on it. All different ones. And I knew there were stores I could go into, and depending on which card slipped out onto the table... I knew the level of service I would get in that store. 
you know. Oh, oh, you're a doctor. Oh, you're a professor. Oh, you're just a mister. Oh, you're a reverend. Because the world judges us by what we do. But that's incidental. Absolutely incidental. The really important thing is what you're for. And what Paul is saying is, first of all, he's for the Lord Jesus. That's why he's here. And then he's, does this ring a bell with you from your childhood if you went to Sunday school? And then you're for others. And Muggins is at the end of the queue. And didn't they teach you in Sunday school how to spell joy properly? Jesus first others next, yourself last. You didn't believe a word of it, did you? You didn't believe a single word of it. You didn't see how it could work. It could only work when you reversed it. Yourself first, then maybe others, and then find a place for Jesus. You see, he's Paul, and he's, he's, not, he's not advertising this. He's not saying this Does he even know at this point that later on he's going to tell them three times that they've got to rejoice? But he's already slipping in the foundations here, isn't he? And he's showing how in his own experience this had become a reality in a a situation that that broke the hearts of the Philippians. There was joy in the apostle Paul because he knew what he was for. Remember how he describes himself. He says, I'm I'm a prisoner for Jesus Christ. I'm doing this for Jesus' sake. Uh, My whole life is for the Lord Jesus. And in that he discovered in the glorious self-forgetfulness that looking to Christ and being absorbed with Christ, devoted to Christ, taken up with Christ, and therefore taken up with what Christ is doing and marveling at what Christ is doing, produces the kind of self-forgetfulness that means the Apostle Paul didn't need to add a little postscript at the end of Philippians saying, by the way, you know that you spell joy, Jesus first, others next, and yourself last. So, My friends, do we see the goal to which God is working through everything? This is an instrument in God's hands, moment by moment, hour by hour, everything that happens, good or bad, is going to be an instrument in God's hands to lead me on to a glorious salvation. And that glorious salvation, well, it means being with Christ and seeing Him face to face. And since that's true, um, do I see that I'm called to honor the Lord Jesus in my body? You know, that's going to strike each of us differently, isn't it? The way you wash the dishes, how you face temptation, what you do with your body. It's not yours, it's His. And since it's His, the only safe thing to do with it is to keep on yielding it to Him. And it's as we do that that more and more we realize that his concern is 
that we should be for Him. And then everything else would fit into place. And joy would be the result. Well, may that be so for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for the ways in which You bring us to joy, the joy of salvation, joy in the midst of sorrow, joy through affliction, joy in serving others, and all because there is joy in the Lord Jesus. We thank You that our Savior has brought us to joy, and we pray that that joy may well up in us in in unexpected times and unexpected places the course of this week as we look to Him and tell Him that we love Him, that we want to live for Him, and that we want others to share in that joy too. And we ask this in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.